Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. You'd open to the book of Matthew. We'll read our text for this morning. Beginning of Matthew's Gospel, verses 1 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. To all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Father, as we contemplate this lineage of our Lord Jesus, this bloodline through which salvation has flowed, we pray that you would awaken us to the significance of these words, that you would give us an assurance of your faithfulness generation to generation. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Ah, genealogy. Isn't it delightful to begin the book of Matthew with a nice genealogy? When people rack their brains and try to come up with examples of the most tedious, the most boring bits in Scripture, the competition usually runs between Levitical law and genealogy. But Levitical law actually has its moments. There are some moments in Levitical law that even on a Sunday morning will wake you right up. And then there's genealogy. Genealogy. He begat him, and he begat him, and this one begat that one, and that one begat that one. On and on, ad infinitum. This tends to be where we go whenever we want to illustrate just how pointless, how tedious, how boring the Bible can actually be. And so Matthew, when he begins to pin his gospel, because he wants you to read this book, 
He wants you to be intrigued and to follow through in reading about the life of Jesus. He starts his book with a genealogy. Oh, I know what will hook them. I know what will captivate them. They won't be able to put this scroll down if I start with a bunch of he begat him and he begat him and he begat him. You're like, Matthew, no. Pay attention. You need to understand better how good stories are told. And yet, if you study Matthew's gospel, you discover that Matthew's gospel is actually the most self-conscious gospel when it comes to storytelling style. Typically, people would say, no, 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 that's not true. That's John's gospel you're thinking of, because John's gospel isn't chronological. It's thematic in the way that the events are organized, which is true. But when you look at Matthew, and I don't mean dip into it, I don't mean look up proof text, but when you read it cover to cover, you discover that Matthew has what to us is actually a very artificial structure. The way the story is told is not straight narrative. You can break this book down into pieces. Basically, at the beginning and the end, you have these bookends, uh, the narrative of the birth of Jesus at the beginning, and at the end, his crucifixion and his resurrection. But in the middle, the heart of this book, are these kind of stylized sections, five of them in total, and each one roughly has two parts. There'll be a narrative section and then a discourse section. So you'll get events that take place, and those events lead up to a big block of Jesus' teaching, his sayings all compiled together. Uh, the first of these is the Sermon on the Mount. The last of them is the Olivet Discourse. Each of these five discourses is a kind of compilation of the teaching of Jesus. Oftentimes we get this teaching in, in other Gospels, but in a slightly different format because Matthew is organizing things self-consciously here for a reason. But if that's true, if he's actually paying attention to the form, if he's actually thinking about how to tell this story, why start here? Why not give us a juicy birth narrative? Why not start with wise men coming mysteriously from the east? Why start with a list of he begat hymns? I think there's a reason. There's a reason. Just as Matthew in his five big blocks is self-consciously, so it seems, emulating the five books of the law, here, by beginning where he begins, he is self-consciously orienting us, grounding us in the Old Testament. But he's reminding us of where Christ comes from. And we can see this, I hope, really clearly because we're just coming off of a study of Zechariah. So a lot of things that would be obscure to us ordinarily are now fresh in our minds. And we're going to notice things, even in the genealogy, before Zechariah, you might have come to a name like Zerubbabel and thought, well, I wonder who that guy was. But now you know Zerubbabel is the governor, the leader in the days of Zechariah, but he comes from the bloodline of King David. And now he's included here in the bloodline of Jesus Christ. When you read this genealogy with your Old Testament glasses on, you realize this is a hook. This is a mighty hook. Because anybody who knows their Old Testament sees that there is a link that is being built, a bridge from the ancient days of our people to what has just happened in the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the significance of the genealogy 
is that when we are introduced to Jesus, we already know who stands behind him, as it were. Behind Jesus, this man who walked among us in our lifetimes, King David stands, if you trace the generations back. And behind King David, if you trace the generations back, Abraham, Father Abraham, the one to whom the promise was made, who defined us as a people, he stands in this line behind Jesus as well. So when you're introduced to Jesus, you're introduced to everyone who comes with him, the bloodline that connects him back to the very beginning. As if Matthew is saying, if you want to know who Jesus is, then you need to start by knowing where Jesus came from. You need to know where Jesus came from. And when we ask that question, where do you come from? That's another way of asking the question, who are you? The question about your identity. Where do you come from is an identity question, and it's a hard question for us these days because we all suffer from an identity crisis. You perhaps have never been brought home to meet the the southern mother of the girl that you're dating. But if that had ever happened to you, one of the questions you might have been asked was, well, who are your people? Where do you come from? Now, that's never an innocent question. The implication is always that wherever you come from, it's probably not good enough. Or you come from probably sordid, low people who shouldn't be mixing with a southern mother's daughter in the first place. But you get the point of the question. It's not just reel off your genealogy to me, let me know who your, your grandfather and great-grandfather were. It's who are you? What kind of person are you? Are you any good? There's the implication of it there. So when you see this genealogy, think in terms of identity. Think in terms of the question, who is this guy? Who is Jesus? I had a friend when I was in college who had a very Italian last name, but became convinced that he was descended from Scottish royalty. And he had traced all this stuff back, so he knew not only his tartan, but he knew like the ruined castle that was rightfully the possession of his family, and he daydreamed about going back and retaking it, reclaiming it for himself. I thought that was crazy, but he had this really vivid uh, sense of it. It was very important to him that this story be believed. Uh, later on, some of you have heard this story, my grandmother became interested in genealogy, and she started tracing the, the, the bloodline of our family back. And of course, she kept discovering greater and greater marvels. Not only had my ancestors come over on the Mayflower, but it turns out that I was descended from the, the Tudor kings of England, even though I thought they died out, and that was the whole point of, of that line, no longer being kings. No, turns out I was one of them. And uh, if any, you know, British royalty is listening to this, I, I'm ready to serve. Just let me know. Uh, although there are greater claims because, of course, my grandmother traced it back and found out I was also descended from the Egyptian sun god Ra. <sighs> yeah. This isn't unusual. A lot of modern people go online, they open up their genealogical study accounts, and they start finding out where they come from, their history. The reason why this is so important to so many of us is that in the modern world, we have a very thin sense of our own history. We feel like we're losing touch with where we've come from because we feel like we've lost touch with who we are. Remember, where do you come from is just another way of asking, who are you? That's a question about identity, and we are obsessed with identity. We talk about identity all the time. 
In our politics, we talk either lovingly or frustratedly about identity politics, but, but it doesn't matter how political you are, all of us use these terms. I hear people, Presbyterian ministers, saying things like, well, I identify as a Presbyterian, and I want to slap them, except I say the same thing myself sometimes. All of us use this language of identity as if our identity is something that is not fixed, something that we are discovering for ourselves, and more often than not, inventing for ourselves as well. We don't know who we are, and so we're looking for ways to nail that down. And for some people, uh, family history becomes the answer. For other people, ethnicity or nationality becomes the answer. Some of us, our work becomes the answer. For some of us, education is the answer to the question, who we are. We flail around, for many of us, multiple answers to that question, and they will change over time because this is a problem for us. This is a problem. It goes back in our society to the so-called death of God. It's nothing new. As soon as we decided as a culture that there was no God, we had to come to terms with the fact that if there is no God, then there is no givenness to our lives. Then we weren't born meaning anything. We have no fixed identity. We are simply meaningless creatures in a meaningless world, and the only meaning available to us is what we construct for ourselves. Now, we try to convince ourselves this is a good thing. And when we talk about this idea that that our identity is something for us to invent for ourselves or discover for ourselves, we talk about it as if it's liberating, as if this is a freedom that human beings have never enjoyed before, that we are kind of the inheritors of this new way of existing, and it is exciting, it is thrilling. Finally, in all of human history, we have reached the point where no one can tell you who you are. When only you have the power to answer that question. The problem is, even though we talk about this as freedom, we experience it as crisis. That all this language that sounds so exciting, the way that we live in these choices, and the way that we try to make them and hold on to them once they're made, looks more like crisis than it does opportunity. It leads us to doubt. It leads us to depression. The power of self-invention is not truly a key to happiness. Otherwise, we would have died of bliss by now. Instead, the power of self-invention seems to be something else entirely. Self-invention is not freedom. It is a kind of self-destruction. And it's something we see all around us, but before we look out there and say, oh, that's what's wrong with them, let's consider ourselves and how we too struggle with these very same questions. I identify as a Presbyterian. I'm not like them. In many cases, it's just another way, just another label, another identity that we cobble together for ourselves And the fundamental cause, the thing that motivates all of this, that we have forgotten what we are. We have forgotten who we are, what it means to be human, and where we as human beings have come from. And so Matthew begins his gospel by answering exactly this question. The the where do we come from question, the genealogy question. He answers the question, who is Jesus, by starting with where did he come from? And that's actually a good thing for us as well. 
if we look at the genealogy again with fresh eyes, we see that what this genealogy is conveying, what's being handed down generation after generation is hope. The genealogy equals hope because hope comes through that bloodline. The gospel hope begins with genealogy. Literally in Matthew's case, but, but metaphorically in every case, that the, the good news of salvation begins with genealogy because it begins with the bloodline, the origin of Jesus Christ. We ask ourselves where Jesus came from. Matthew answers that question very differently than, than a lot of people who were there when Jesus was born thought it would be answered. Everything about Jesus seemed obscure. He was just this little baby born to these obscure parents in essentially poverty. There was nothing to mark him as special in any way. And yet, this genealogy tells a different story. If you go back behind the birth of the infant Jesus, if you trace it back to its source, you find Father Abraham standing there, that Jesus is the son of Abraham. Now that's significant because Abraham is the one who received the promise. It is to his seed, to his offspring, that the promise is made. And generation after generation of Jews had clung to that promise as their identity. And they do it in Matthew's gospel as well, as we'll see as we go on. There are people here whose identity is wrapped up in being the sons of Abraham. And now, Matthew declares there is a son of Abraham, and it is Jesus Christ whom you rejected. He undermines those claims to identity. Tracing that line back to Abraham, of course, we go through Zerubbabel, the returned exiles, back to King David. King David, who ruled over the physical kingdom of Israel that became the prototype for the spiritual kingdom that the Messiah would rule and reign over. So as you look at this genealogy, we have two of the greatest ideas of Christ's ministry, two of the greatest ideas of the gospel, the covenant, and the kingdom being presented, that Jesus Christ is heir to both the covenant made with Abraham and the kingdom established through good King David. That is his identity. So Matthew's genealogy establishes the identity of Jesus through the idea of succession. By tracing one generation after another, we see that these promises of covenant salvation and these promises of kingdom glory are being handed down. They're being handed down from, from one generation to the next. They endure a lot of history and a lot of trial. The kingdom rises and the kingdom falls. The people go into exile, and then they return from exile, and then they go into exile again, and then they return yet again. And through all that history, one thing remains constant, that all of those promises are being handed down so that they can be fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. The covenant promise made to Abraham raises hope, but the fulfillment of all those hopes comes with Jesus Christ, because he is the offspring. He is the son of Abraham. In Matthew's gospel, we'll see that he is the true heir of Abraham, contrary to all the other claims and all the other people who think, no, we are the sons of Abraham. But the kingdom promise 
also raises hope as well. That the kingdom, even though the reality of the physical kingdom was always a bit of a shambles, and the glory days of that kingdom ended almost as soon as they began, the kingdom lived on as an idea of what would come, an idea of what the world would be like when the king returned and restored his rule over all creation. And so the kingdom, too, raised hope. And those hopes, in order to be fulfilled, we had to look forward to the coming of the son of David. And in Matthew's gospel, we see that Jesus is the son of David. He is the king who was awaited, who will establish the promised spiritual kingdom. So in a way, as you think about the logic of this, why begin with a genealogy? What Matthew is doing here is he's essentially beginning in a place that makes sense of everything that follows. Like what he's telling you now lays the foundation to understand everything that comes after in that gospel narrative. Why Jesus made the claims that he did, why he did the things he did, how he was able to do the things that he did, and why he taught the things that he did the way that he did. All of it flows from what we read here at the beginning in the identity of Christ and where he came from. Jesus spoke and taught and acted the way that he did because he was the son of Abraham and he was the son of David. He was the, the, the king who had been promised. He was the one that the prophets had foretold. As if Matthew was saying, of course Jesus did these things. Just look where he came from. Coming from where he came from, how could he have done anything else? The genealogy, the bloodline, connects the promises to their fulfillment, in other words. It connects the promises that God makes at the very beginning of the Bible to the fulfillment of those promises at the very end of the Bible. This genealogy holds it all together and points to the the connection in the person of Jesus Christ, the rightful Messiah, Christ. Of course, the word Christ is not a name, it's a title. Christ is a title. It's the word in the New Testament that they use to mean what they would have called in the Old Testament Messiah. So when you read Christ here, you'll see it's pretty rare in the Gospels to refer to Jesus as Jesus Christ the way that we do. It it happens a couple of times in Matthew's Gospel, but not that often. Well, the reason is that, that Christ Jesus is a more sensible order at this period in time, because the title comes before the name. It's only later that we start using the title as if it were his name. Kind of the way we we talk about Julius Caesar as Caesar, and then afterwards the Caesars, like the name becomes the title. Here the title becomes the name. So what does that name mean? Well, to be the Christ is to be the Messiah. To be the Messiah is to be the anointed one. In English, it actually helps us. Christ helps us because we still have the word christen. When someone is christened, they're kind of anointed, a little pouring out. It's similar to what we talked about last week in baptism. When we administer the waters of baptism onto the forehead of the believer, sealing that person, as it were, symbolically, with the name of our Lord Jesus, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. You see this idea. Well, that's who Christ is. He is the anointed one. He is the one who bears the name. He is the one who inherits all of the promises. He is the one 
in whom all of us, when we gather together in Him, receive the inheritance that was promised. So no one has a greater right to inherit than the son of David and the son of Abraham. No one has a greater right to inherit all of God's promises than the son of David and the son of Abraham. And if you are in the son, then no one has a greater right to these promises than you do. You look at the structure of the genealogy, it's interesting at the end, we have this sort of mathematical conclusion where we're self-consciously, like, like point, it's pointed out to us, like, did you count those generations I just gave you? Matthew's like, I know you didn't. You got a little bored. You tuned out while we were doing that, so you didn't keep count. So let me tell you, there's three sections, and each one is, is 14 generations. And he recaps it for us at the end. And of course, if you're thinking numerologically, 14 is an interesting number because it, it's like two sevens, seven and seven together. If seven is the number of completion and perfection and wholeness, then seven plus seven must be like really complete and really whole. And getting three seven plus sevens is like seven plus seven plus seven plus seven plus seven plus seven. That must be really, really perfect. There's something really ideal about this bloodline, about this this genealogy. I think that is intentional because what Matthew is demonstrating to us is not just the identity of Jesus, but the inevitability of his identity. That there is something inescapable about the fact that Jesus is the one. That even if you go back and, and look, even if you go back and trace the generations, the bloodline, you'll see this is the one. It all adds up. It all makes sense. All the lines converge on this one man who was the one we were told to expect. This was inevitable. Every promise converges on him. All history leads to him. And when you look at it that way, what the genealogy conveys to us ultimately is security. If your trust is in Jesus, your trust has not been misplaced. If your trust is in Jesus, then your salvation, your identity is secure because he is the son of Abraham. He is the son of David. He is the son of God, the son, second person of the triune God. And instead of being conflicted about his identity, he is certain who he is and what he has come here to do. Christ's identity doesn't create a crisis. It ends one. It ends it with absolute certainty. And that's a certainty that we and our uncertainty are invited into. Because this genealogy, although it is Christ's genealogy, it isn't only his. This is a genealogy that is open to us as well. You think about it, there's something alienating about genealogy in general. Uh, I mentioned my friend who had the Scottish castle. I always found it annoying to be told about this great inheritance that belonged to him. And I've noticed when I tell people that I came over on the Mayflower, my ancestors did, and that I'm also descended from the Egyptian sun god Ra, they're usually irritated by these facts. I've never had anyone say, wow, I always knew there was something supernatural about you. They think it's kind of weird and dumb. And the reason is, there's always the implication when I say, like, well, my people came over on the Mayflower, I'm also saying, didn't notice your people on the boat. I'm descended from the Egyptian sun god Ra. Hmm. I don't think you're descended from mythological deities. 
Right? There's always that, that kind of flip side, the double-edged sword, where you, you wonder, like, is the reason this is so important to you because it's true of you and not of me? Like, is this identity the thing that kind of makes you better than me? Right? Oftentimes, we boast about where we come from. That's the way it comes off. Everybody else who's not from there, it's like, oh, I see, you're better than me. That's what's going on here. That's not what's going on here. That's not what's happening in this genealogy. The important thing here to take away is not, well, this is where Jesus comes from, and where do you come from? Nowhere good. Because the bloodline that Christ comes from is ours as well. If we are in Christ, this is our inheritance too. The gospel, the good news, begins with genealogy, but it's the genealogy not only of Christ, but of Christ's people. I think Matthew here establishes that no one has a better claim to the title of Messiah King than Jesus does. But at the same time, he establishes the fact that if you are in Jesus, if you by faith are relying on him for your salvation, have been adopted in him, then you inherit that whole promise as well. Then everything that is his is given to you as well. Then you enter into that bloodline just as securely as he does. Your identity is made secure without any need to invent yourself or to reinvent yourself. That's how the genealogy, even the genealogy proclaims the hope of the gospel. Because it says to us that in that bloodline of Christ, our names too can be written down. So when you think about it, theologically, the genealogy forms an unbreakable link between Abraham and Jesus, which is another way of saying an unbreakable link between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's no way for someone to say, well, the Old Testament and the New Testament are not connected, are not related to one another. That's two different religions, two different faiths. This genealogy establishes the inescapable connection of those two things, that the promises of the Old Testament are connected to the fulfillment of the New Testament. That's theologically. But personally, something else is demonstrated as well. It's that Jesus Christ forms an unbreakable link between the covenant promise given to Abraham and you. But if you are in Christ, then you are the sons and the daughters of Abraham then you are the sons and the daughters of David. You are the brothers and the sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.